Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this series of podcasts, we're throwing a quizzical spotlight on the ever-changing and endlessly intriguing area of UK trade policy as it takes shape following the UK's exit from the EU. And in this episode, we're heading down under as we take a closer look at the new Free Trade Agreement, or FTA, between the UK and Australia. This comprehensive agreement, which was signed by the two governments in December 2021, has had the UK government reaching for the thesaurus as it trumpets the sheer wondrousness of the deal. This world-class agreement marks a landmark moment in the historic and vital relationship between our two Commonwealth nations, if International Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan is to be believed. It's the first agreement that the UK has negotiated from scratch since leaving the EU. And it's certainly an ambitious one, as for one thing, it will remove all tariff protection for imports of agricultural products something which the EU would be very unlikely to have countenanced. But what does the agreement deliver in other areas, like services, government procurement or digital trade? And have the Australians' feet been held to the bushfire when it comes to the vexed question of environmental and climate provisions? In short, can the UK government's enthusiastic reviews of the agreement be described as fair dinkum? Or will the deal's benefits prove to be as elusive as a camera-shy wallaby? Well, to make their assessments of the new agreement, we have assembled three distinguished guests, all of whom have deep expertise in international trade policy analysis. I'm joined by Dr. Emily Lidgate, Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Also with us is Dr. Minico Morita Jaeger, Senior Research Fellow in International Trade at the University of Sussex and Policy Research Fellow at the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And joining us from Australia is our very special guest, Professor Peter Draper, Executive Director of the Institute for International Trade at the University of Adelaide. Many thanks to all of you for joining us today. Emily, why did the UK choose Australia to be its first homegrown FTA partner? What was the strategic thinking, do you think, on on the UK side? Thanks, Chris. And I should say that before we get going, that I'm um, helping the EFRA committee of the House of Commons do their inquiry on the Australia FTA. So just to clarify that I'm obviously not speaking in any sort of EFRA committee capacity here today. But I think we have a sense sometimes that there's this enormous world of of FTAs to be negotiated. And actually, you know, the EU has been in this game for quite a while and in the UK with it. So in that sense, this isn't our first FTA. I mean, we've spent the last couple of years, quote unquote, rolling over all of our EU FTAs. So then it sort of becomes a question of who's left. And some of the countries that are left are really tough ones, you know, like China and India, who throw out various problems. But Australia is, you know, a a country that's liberalized quite a bit, but is obviously a very attractive partner for the UK because there's a sense that even though geographically we're on the other side of the world, culturally we're very, very close. So I think it's sort of a win-win in terms of economic and political closeness for the UK government. 
And Peter, from a very broad sort of trade politics perspective, what has Australia gained from doing a deal with the UK? Thanks, Chris. I think there's a few key points. The first, thinking about the liberal rules-based trading order, is that Australia really wants to buttress that order. And the UK is like-minded in that context, very much a like-minded partner. And bringing these two countries together really seals that proposition, as it were. From a more narrow economic perspective, this deal also re-establishes the UK as an important market for Australian exporters. When it goes back to the 1960s, the UK constituted about 25% or a quarter of Australian exports. Now it's down to 4 or 5% at a time when we're coming under considerable pressure from our main trading partner, which is China. Uh, So there's been a campaign of economic coercion against Australia, and hence a lot of the debate, the trade policy debate in Australia is about diversification of markets. And so the UK and beyond that, the EU, with whom we're also negotiating an agreement, are very important in that that context. So, Minica, what are we dealing with here? What are the key features of this UK-Australia FTA? Thank you, Chris. Um, Let me give you the, the three major features here. Uh, first, as you said, well, the Australia-UK FTA is the first FTA that you can negotiate from scratch. So this is purely tailor-made. It's not uh, you know, copied from the EU's FTAs. In the sense, it's very the UK did everything they want to do to directly reflect its interest. And secondly, it's a comprehensive agreement, what we call it deep agreement, in terms of coverage, not only the trading goods and services, and but very sort of a high degree of the uh, high quality digital trade agreement and uh, SME chapters, environmental labor, competition policy, and state-owned enterprises, very wide coverage it achieves. And in terms of the depth of the rules, it's a, you know, so many standalone chapters and financial services or you know, regulatory cooperation. And then the commitment is very deep. And then thirdly, the UK-Australia FTA used the CPTPP as a template in many chapters. So this is because Australia is a member of the CPTPP and the UK is now on the process of accession. But, you know, that this is the FTA which shows the UK is ready to join the CPTPP. So, Emily, the UK government has described the FTA as being a world-class trade deal. What kind of novel features are included in it? What what are the advanced features that might warrant such a description? I mean, is it really such a a groundbreaking deal as it's being billed? Yes, I think there are some things in this FTA in the areas of sort of free movement of people. It's it's easier for British nationals to live and work in Australia now than before. And, you know, Australia is notoriously tricky around that issue Minico, I want to put you on the spot because these these are more the areas that you're an expert in. So what is your reflection on that question? I think as well that, you know, this is the FTA between the developed countries, highly developed countries. This is the North-North FTA. It's the latest one. So that means it reflects business needs and innovation as well as in high degree environment and commitment to labor and gender. So let me give you the example of the digital trade. This is really the highlight of the UK-Australia FTA. It really covers comprehensive coverage. Uh, the chapter is based on the Australia-Singapore Digital Economy Agreement. 
and it shows that promoting the unit trade facilitation and free data flow and uh, ban on data localization and then protection of source code. All of these innovations are reflected in the chapter. On the other hand, it's very difficult to get the balance between market innovation and the public policy objective. In a sense, still, this digital chapter, still the area underdeveloped is the uh, data privacy and then also the competitive policy. This is a kind of untouched area. And then, for example, data privacy, the UK has GDPR, you know, based on the EU. Uh, so this is a really the high degree of the data privacy uh, protection. But on the other hand, Australia is not provide um, the EU. So if we just, um, the UK and Australia, commit that free data flow, that might, you know, endanger the relation with, between the EU and the UK. So in detail, still, the, you know, several things we have to think about. But the, in general, they just uh, try, the UK and Australia try to just uh, uh, maximize, to reflect uh, innovation and the dynamism of the market and business. This is, a, I think, the feature. So we will probably come back to this question of how this affects the relationship between the UK and the EU, perhaps later on. Peter, look, from your perspective, are there any areas of this agreement where the Australia and the UK could or should have gone further or faster? You know, are there any areas where we've left something out on the pitch, to use a, a, a sort of a football metaphor? Look, I think when it comes to negotiating any trade agreement, you're bound by your domestic constituencies on both sides. So it's always good to ask the counterfactual question. But at the end of the day, the agreement reflects the art of the possible at a particular point in time. And the agreements should be living agreements, right? The, the discussion doesn't end here. In fact, what this agreement does is, is it sets up a series of conversations, structured dialogues, if you like. For instance, one of the interesting innovations in this agreement is the innovation chapter. It's the first time Australia signs up to an innovation chapter. Uh, and that commits both parties to a dialogue about things such as supply chain resilience, building that through technology transfers and investments in R&D and other mechanisms. It's not binding, but it will lead to, one would hope, uh, concrete outcomes. So the agreement will continue to evolve over time, I feel, and I think that's as it should be. Okay, now here in the UK, the one thing that everybody knows about this agreement is that tariffs on agricultural imports are going to be abolished completely within 15 years. And for most products, considerably quicker than that. Rice, I believe, being the only exception to that. And British farmers have reacted very angrily. They have described this FTA as a betrayal. Emily, do you think they have justified grounds to be upset by what's been negotiated? In the last minute, poultry, eggs, and pig were also excluded from the liberalization. I think there's a lot of outrage about this because, first of all, there's this question of, well, why did we need to do this? You know, it's very common to maintain agricultural tariffs in FTAs. And as you said before, Chris, we did that as EU members. It was common practice for us to maintain some agricultural tariffs in FTAs. And it also went against the advice that came from a number of independent bodies to the UK. So the Trade and Agriculture Commission, which was set up precisely because of the concerns about 
undermining UK agricultural standards, advised the UK government not to liberalize tariffs in an FTA without introducing more conditionality. So in other words, extending more of our UK requirements in areas like animal welfare and environment. That was echoed in the National Food Strategy and also the Committee on Climate Change. (laughs) So they all obviously coordinated amongst each other and came up with this, this core proposal for the UK government. And there was a sense of, I think, even the Australians being somewhat surprised that the UK was willing to to do this. On the other hand, you can say that it's possible that economically in the farm sector, this might not make that much of a difference because we're talking about very small export volumes. So if we look at, for example, the beef sector, so UK TPO figures have concluded that 3% of our beef imports come from Australia. So even if you increase that, we're still not talking about huge volumes. And in addition, we have some regulatory barriers that we're keeping in place. So we still ban beef treated with hormones. And according to the Meat and Livestock Australia, only 10% of Australian beef is capable of being exported to us because it can be certified as as hormone-free. So it's just very uncertain. And there's all kinds of geopolitical factors here too. So for example, a lot of Australia's agricultural exports are headed for China. So, you know, as we know, there's a lot of instability with China right now. And so it's possible that some of that could be redirected towards the UK. So we have to just wait and see how this plays out. So it's been a controversial deal in the UK. Peter, what's the public reception to the FTA been like in Australia to the extent that it has sort of registered on the radar there? Well, I'd have to say that there's delight about the agricultural market access <laughs> for starters. So we think it's a good deal from that point of view. I doubt it would have sold very well in the Australian context without that degree of market access. But I'd also add to what Emily said that, uh, and you know, I don't know the UK agricultural political economy well, but agriculture is difficult in just about any country in the world. Probably not so difficult in Australia, and that's largely because we dispensed with agricultural subsidies for the most part decades ago under the Uruguay round. There's still some residual subsidies, but they're pretty small. Uh, But agricultural trade protection as a whole is really minuscule in the Australian context. So so we benefit from open market access elsewhere. And the UK historically has been a major destination market for Australian exports, and that's been a symbiotic relationship. So actually, when the UK joined the European Union, that was a major rupture for Australia, because it meant our agricultural market access was taken away and put into an EU framework. And that was very bad for Australia. So that's why I say we've restored that market access in a sense through this agreement. So the political economy would not have worked without it. Now, the other contentious issue in this, besides agriculture, is the environment and climate provisions. Now, I think it's fair to say that Australia has come under some international criticism as possibly lagging behind some of the other developed countries in terms of its commitment to addressing climate change. First of all, what does the agreement have to say in the area of climate and the environment? So, Emily, what's in the deal here? So, the FTA requires that both parties, quote unquote, affirm their commitment to address climate change into the Paris Agreement. So, Why is this so controversial? Well, there was a media leak in the UK that the UK was sort of dumbing down its climate ask of Australia. And basically what that meant was that the UK didn't get Australia to agree that it was going to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, which is what the Paris Agreement encourages countries to do and what the sort of more ambitious countries have agreed to do in their national action plan. So 
there was a sense of, you know, that there was a limited ambition on climate and that the UK didn't get Australia to move the dial domestically. On the other hand, they got a mention of the Paris Agreement in the FTA. So they succeeded in that sense. That was very much sort of a UK ask. So I think you could see it from two perspectives. But the the concerns behind this are really about the fact that, first of all, we're doing an FTA with a country on the other side of the world. And does that make sense with our net zero agenda? So are we in the UK sort of incentivizing more emissions on the other side of the world through this FTA. But again, the numbers are tiny, right? So DIT is estimate is that emissions in Australia might go up by 0.1%. So there's a symbolic level to it as well. With Are we really integrating our net zero agenda with our trade agenda here? Peter, does the Australian government think it's being got at? And you know, is this a controversial sell? What's in the UK-Australia FTA in the area of climate and environment? It really hasn't been subject to much controversy at all, I have to say, and that's largely because that particular chapter is essentially a cooperative chapter. Uh, So it locks in existing commitments and it doesn't create any real new commitments. And frankly, I think that was always going to be the outcome, a bit like Australia. I don't think they would have walked away from the deal if they hadn't been good agricultural market access, but it would have been much more difficult to sell domestically. Uh, And By the same token, to bind Australia to something outside of its international commitments through a bilateral free trade agreement with the UK, that was just, in my view, never going to happen. It was an unrealistic expectation. So, no, it hasn't been controversial, I think, largely for that that reason. To me, one of the great oddities of this FTA is that we have an environment chapter which has this non-regression commitment, which basically says, as Peter says, we're not going to change anything that we're already doing, you know, domestically, but at least we're not going to deregulate in order to give our exports an advantage. So they've agreed that. And that is enforceable through sanctions. So, you know, the UK could say, well, Australia is deregulated and therefore we're going to impose tariffs. On the other hand, the SPS and TBT chapters, which have to do with product standards, are not enforceable with sanctions. They're exempted from dispute settlement. Challenge to our listeners, are there any other FTAs where the environment chapter is enforceable, but the provisions on product standards, which is more what you think of as trade and trade agreements, you know, political will is around, are not enforceable. So it's very interesting and curious in that respect. And I think that suggests that concerns about environmental deregulation were high on the agenda in that sense. Minika, I'd like to look at this agreement in a broader perspective. As the UK's first homegrown FTA, it inevitably sets down some benchmarks for the UK trade deals which are going to follow. Now, the UK has already quite recently signed a trade deal, a quite similar one, with New Zealand. But what does the UK-Australia FTA have to tell us about the government's trade strategy and its policy priorities? Where are we heading? What sort of benchmark have we set? Before Brexit, the UK government, well, the, the strategy is a target of the FTAs is uh, the US number one, the US, and then New Zealand, Australia, and CPTPP. So this is definitely the UK, Australia FTA, together with the UK, New Zealand FTA, are going to be the stepping stone for joining the CPTPP. This is, in general, the UK is taking the EU regulatory approach and are now shifting you know, to the 
Asia-Pacific style regulatory approach, the, starting from the Australia, UK, and then New Zealand, UK, and the CTTP. And then finally, if you know the UK-US FTA happened, this is going to be the benchmark for the US. And how to do with agriculture, how to just the US will, you know, use this agriculture liberalization is a matter of a question. Well, I think that's a good point. And although UK-US trade FTA negotiations are on the back burner for the moment, the UK is proposing to pursue, already pursuing negotiations with Canada, with Mexico, with India, with the Gulf states and so on. So has the UK, Emily, do you think, created a kind of precedent which other countries will pile in on? I mean, if you were the Canadian government, you'd say, well, you've given completely free access to agricultural markets to the Australians and the New Zealanders. Why not us? Absolutely. And I think that's why, despite the fact that agricultural trade between Australia and the UK probably isn't going to make or break the UK farm sector, there's a lot of concern about this. And we know sort of anecdotally that New Zealand revised up its ambition when it saw this and Brazil revised up its ambition when it saw this. So it is definitely the case that if a country sees that the UK has offered this to Australia, it would say, you know, why not us? And we've already talked about the digital and data provisions in the agreement, which could potentially run up against some difficulties in terms of the UK's trade agreements with the EU. I wonder, looking more generally, is there anything else or is there anything at all in the UK-Australia FTA which could complicate the UK's trade relationship with the EU, which is, of course, massively bigger than its trade relationship with Australia and is important? Do you think there are other areas where that trade relationship could be impacted by what's been agreed here? So there are two issues in relation with the EU and the UK-EU you know, trade and cooperation agreement. The digital trade chapter there is completely different. It's a, they, it took completely different approach. But then, you know, UK is a trying to keep the good standard of the data privacy using the GDPR. And then it seems that the government is trying to make more, you know, flexible the adequacy decision in the future. And then the other point is, um, in general, the UK-Australia FTA takes more kind of the light public policy objective clauses in the digital trade chapter. So it means they take the WTO principle. Also, just very difficult to just make countries to take the action to, you know, for the public policy objectives such as data privacy or, or security. So the more market-oriented approach. So the, whether it is good or not, well, it is very for business, for especially the UK side, the, you know, the fintech or fintech companies and finance sector, they really, you know, support this chapter, but for the long term, is it really gain that trust for the long term? And then especially in relation with the EU. From a sort of agri-food perspective, the, the big set of concerns in the UK domestically has been, are we going to move away from the EU's model of regulating, which some other countries consider to be trade restrictive? And that is sort of loosely based around the precautionary principle, but 
drives a lot of trade restrictions in areas like pesticide residue levels, hormone beef, chlorinated chicken, et cetera. The list, the list goes on. And I think one thing that stood out to me about this FTA is that those concerns do not seem to be realized in any sense. The SPS chapter is really unambitious in terms of trying to tackle these regulatory barriers. Neither side, the lack of dispute settlement, which I mentioned, and it's not anywhere as detailed as CPTPP, for example, it's not anywhere as detailed as CPTPP, which has much more demanding requirements on sort of bringing regulation together with other countries, basing it on science, which is seen as sort of anti-precaution. And actually, the TAP network has put out a policy brief on the FTA, if anyone's interested in, which is really comprehensive. It goes through every single (laughs) chapter. And you can see that almost all of them are heavily influenced by CPTPP. But SPS, which is the sort of food standards chapter, is not. So that's interesting. As we move towards the close of our podcast, I'd like to ask each of you in turn the same question. In the real world, what difference is this FTA going to make to UK businesses trading in Australia and vice versa? What will be the economic impact for the two countries? What will this deliver on the ground? Peter, can I start with you? What do you think this agreement will deliver, economically speaking? I think fundamentally it depends on the extent to which business on both sides is aware of the agreement and actually takes it up and implements or takes advantage of the provisions. So that's partly about awareness raising campaigns and certainly on the Australian side, that's well underway now. So the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is running workshops in each state and all the major centres and regional centres to, in effect, sell the agreement. And they're doing that in partnership with the Australia-British Chamber of Business. So it's business on both sides that's being made aware of it. But then in terms of the sectoral impact, so yes, it depends which businesses take it up. But I think, at least in the short term, the primary benefits to Australia are likely to be inward investment into Australia, particularly in the services sector, I would suggest, as well as agricultural market access and enhanced services market access for Australian services companies into the UK market. And I think particularly of financial services, for instance, but also movement of professionals, uh, young people through the various visa arrangements and enhanced visa access that they'll have on both sides. So I think there's a range of potential benefits on the table, but both sides need to really take it up. Minico, do you see a big economic boost on either side? Even the agreement is very, you know, comprehensive and deep, but economic impact is very modest. And then according to the UK TPO's economic model, maybe that, you know, the increase in GDP for the UK is between 0.05% to 0.07%. And Emily, what's your overall take? I mean, I think it's hard to really add anything to that sort of picture by numbers that Minico painted, but Certainly, the UK's premise is that it's going to make up for some of its lost EU market access through this strategic pivot to the Indo-Pacific, which is where the consumers of the future are located. And I think this is a step down that path. And then the next big step is obviously CPTPP accession. And no doubt we will be holding a Trade Bites podcast on CPTPP accession nearer the time. But for now, this is where we have to wrap up our podcast today. 
So I'd like to say a huge thanks to my guests, to Emily Lidgate, Minico Marita Yeager, and to Peter Draper. And thanks to all of you for listening. Do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.